We're going to read the whole chapter, starting at the beginning, Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. 
And I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. We've had a good dose of songs and hymns and psalms that speak not into uh, a realm of life that is unfamiliar to us. And we turn to a portion of scripture over these Sunday evenings that are amongst the most realistic, the most visceral and powerful, and not stuff you would ever make up while you wanting to write a persuasive uh, story. So let me pray as God speaks uh, to us. Father, we thank you for these words that we have sung. Christian faith does not need to evade the realities of life. Indeed, Christian faith is at its most articulate up against them. We thank you for people like William Cowper, who wrote powerful hymns born of his life's experience. And we thank you that we have just sung a song that lifts up our hearts and our eyes to heaven, to the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ the Lord, who alone can save, who alone can lift us from the grave, who came down to find us and led us out of death, to him, to you, our Father, belongs the highest praise. Father, it's uh, evening time and we're often a little weary. We pray that you would help us to concentrate And if our eyelids begin to flutter a bit, we ask that you would poke us awake and make us listen to the voice of the living God. For we love to hear your voice. And we need to hear your voice. Maybe for the salvation of someone in this room. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Now let me read, um, as you uh, dig out the service sheet with the headings on the back, let me read just a few verses from Mark's Gospel about the Lord Jesus and the parallel that we can draw from this account of Joseph in Genesis. So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor 
except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, Genesis, you'll see the headings on the back of the service sheet, is the book in the Bible about the beginning of the history of the people of God, the family of God. Let me just say that again. It's uh, very important. Genesis is the book in the Bible that teaches us about the beginning of the history of the people of God. How do we know that? Because embedded in the original text of Genesis are chapter headings that make us make it clear to us this book is a family history. Let me show you uh, the first chapter of Genesis. Turn back to the beginning of the book. The first chapter through to chapter 2, verse 3, is like a prologue. And the history of the people of God begins in chapter 2, verse 4. This is when you need a paper Bible. I don't know how you whiz kids manage with your phone. Let me just see if I can catch you out. Chapter 2, verse 4. This is the beginning of the history, okay? These are the generations. There's a, a phrase that recurs all the way through Genesis. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Click forward to chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then on to chapter 6, verse 9, Noah's descendants, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God and so on. Chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of, how are you doing with your phones? These are the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then the focus, the spotlight, comes down on Abraham's line. Chapter 11, verse 27, these are the generations, these are the chapter headings in the text. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, who became Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Then we have sections dealing with the descendants of Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Then Isaac's descendants, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is also referred to as Israel in Genesis. Let me show you chapter 36, verse 1. These are the generations of Esau. And then chapter 37, verses 1 to 2. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, I hope you are persuaded that it's absolutely crystal clear from these chapter headings in the original text. They're not added by editors. The Genesis is a book about the beginning of the history of of the people of God. Now, on Sunday evenings, we're going to study the section from chapters 37 to 50. Joseph is the main character in the section of Genesis 37 to 50, which is why most Bible commentaries or sermon series, including our own, perhaps wrongly, are entitled The Life of Joseph. And it is about Joseph. But not just about him, it is about chapter 37, verses 1 and 2, the sons of Israel. 
It's about all of Joseph's brothers as well as him. Now let me give you the story so far in this uh, book about the beginning of the history of the family of God. Just let me run over this. You don't need to flick around your Bibles. Part 1, Genesis 2, 3 to 4, 26. The generations of the heavens and the earth. Adam, Eve, their rebellion. The fall of humanity. Cain and Abel, the first murder. Chapter 2, Genesis 5, 1 to 68. The generations of Adam describe how following humanity's rebellion, death reigns in the world. Chapter 3, 6, 9 to 9, 29, the generations of Noah, in spite of the wickedness and the rebellion of humanity, God's grace extends to humanity with a new beginning and a new promise, never to repeat the same judgment of God. And then part 4, chapters 10 to 11, 26, the generations of the sons of Noah, right after the flood, right after the restoration right after the rainbow, right after the promise, in spite of God's grace, human beings remain fundamentally rebellious against uh, God. If you want to understand God's grace, now we'll get to this in this book of Genesis a lot, just think of your own heart. Your heart is constantly rebellious, even as a Christian with the Holy Spirit living in you. God's grace is always there, And then from 11.27, the focus is on Abraham's line, the great, great promise of God right back in the beginnings of the history of God's family that from all the nations of the earth, he will call one people to himself. Now that's the backstory and the line comes down through Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac, Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob, also called Israel, and to our section, Chapters 37 to 50, the generations of Jacob, his 12 uh, sons. Now, tonight, chapter 37, and three things I want you uh, to see. Uh, We'll see in our studies of Genesis that the author wants us to know the outcome at the start. So we get in these dreams what the outcome will be at the end. He wants us to know that. I'm going to say three things tonight. First, and you'll see them on the seat, that Joseph is God's man. He is the man chosen by God to rescue God's people. Moreover, Joseph is the man whom God will exalt to a position of rule and authority over whom God's people will bow down before as their Lord. Even those who reject him. And that's what these chapters are about. Joseph is the man chosen by God to rescue God's people. That's what happens in the end. Joseph rescues his brothers. Moreover, they bow down before him as their Lord. That's what happens. And if you see in that, and Richard set me up beautifully, just as well we agree with the Bible. If you see in that a pointer or a picture of Jesus who rescues God's people and before whom God's people bow down before as their Lord, then that is exactly what you are meant to see. Not because this is a well-constructed story that neatly points to Jesus. Rather, because God has worked 
in history, in ways that foreshadow Jesus. God's purpose has always been to rescue and rule over his people through one man. God's purpose has always been for this one man to be rejected and to suffer before he is exalted. And this is all fulfilled supremely and once for all in the person of Jesus, but there are patterns of the same all through the history of God's people. Joseph is God's man, and we will learn a great deal about Jesus through the life of Joseph. Now, maybe you're not a Christian here, and one of the questions you have, and it's a cracking question, is how can I believe in the Bible because your faith is based on Scripture written so many thousands of years ago? One of the answers to that is the extraordinary coherence of Scripture. The sheer impossibility of these ancient books mirroring almost exactly the pattern of the life of Christ. It's beyond the limits of any conspiracy theory to construct this. So that's the first thing we'll look at, that Joseph is God's man. The second thing to see is that Joseph's brothers are wicked men. They will show us the sinful heart of humanity. They will reveal to us our own sinful hearts. One of the Bible commentaries I'm using on this series says, Preacher, beware to be humbled by one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. They will show some of us, Joseph's brothers, that the person we are rejecting will be our saviour. We may, like them, come to realise our wrongdoing and be made to bow down before Jesus, who is Lord. And one of the other realistic things about this book is the time God takes to work. How real is that? For those of us who are believers, we'll not look on from a distance. We'll find ourselves in history. In this story, our hearts exposed, our hearts turned to our Savior, brought to our knees before him as Lord, almost, almost daily, a tough and demanding, a humbling and a sobering, and at the same time, an uplifting and a glorious experience as the Spirit of the living Christ, Savior and Lord, continues to transform our lives as his believing people. The Holy Spirit is, is most efficacious, most at work in our hearts as Christians when we have an attitude of humility before uh, Jesus. Now, the third thing is a great thing, that God is sovereign over the wickedness of man to exalt his chosen man. Much for us to learn tonight and through the series about the sovereignty, the unstop, 
unstoppable, inflexible, determined, resolute, powerful will of God to do his will, to get his way with us, sometimes through us, if we are humble and obedient to him, at times without us or in spite of us. And we'll wrap up tonight with uh, some uh, applications. So first, in a little more detail, Joseph is God's man. Now, it's taken me 30 minutes uh, in the sermon before I mentioned the West End musical, Joseph. Now, most preachers moan about it. I'm going, to not, I'm going to thank God that in the West End of London, hundreds of thousands of people are getting the Bible. I mean, it may not be quite right, but it gets a lot of it right. Let's be thankful for it. Now, maybe you're not a Christian here or listening online, and you've seen the West End musical and you've loved it. Well, here's something even better tonight and in the weeks to come, the real history behind it. One thing we've already learned, though, is that we're not Joseph. We can't be Joseph, even though I think it was Graham Norton appeared in our TVs for a couple of months and said, you could be Joseph. No, you can't. We can't be his brothers, though. A popular misunderstanding of Joseph, communicated to some extent through the musical, was that Joseph was a bit of a sneak who got his comeuppance. And you may have uh, wrestled in your heart, does it, does it, it sort of seems like that. An arrogant young man that had to learn life's lessons. And the story of Joseph is about this arrogant young man having to come to an end of himself before God can use him. Now, let me just completely negate that on the basis that it's just not how Joseph is presented to us in the Bible, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. It's just not supported by the text. It's us reading between the lines. Let me try and show you that he's not someone who is deserving of his comeuppance. The second half of verse 2, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Why? Because they were bad. He was telling the truth. For example, earlier in Genesis, we read of Reuben's immorality. Simeon and Levi, two of his brothers, had made war with a neighboring family that led to murder. Chapter 38, we'll look at next week. What a chapter that is. What a mess. The appalling behavior of Judah. Joseph's bad report is accurate. Verse 3, Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, this may be favoritism on the part of Jacob, but it's not Joseph's fault. It's no fault of Joseph that he was given the robe of a king to wear. I expect Joseph would have rather he hadn't been given it. His brothers hated him, verse 4. And what 17-year-old brother wants to be hated by his older brothers? 
And then he had these two dreams that I wonder if he wished he had not had. Number one, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it, his brothers hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaths in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaths gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? The answer is yes. So they hated Joseph, their Lord. The second dream. This one made his dad wobble. He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Yes. Now, the alert reader of Genesis will know that at this point in the history of God's people, there were no written revelations from God in Scripture. There were no books called Genesis to turn to. And one of the key ways God spoke was through dreams. God does not need to speak in dreams anymore because we have the full and final revelation of God in Scripture and in His Son. And just let me pause there in case your eyes are raised. Am I saying that God never speaks to us through dreams anymore? No. I'm not saying that. In fact, I could tell you of one recently. Not that I had, but someone had. Might just be a coincidence, but it was pretty accurate. What I'm saying to you is that he does not need to speak in dreams because he has given us his full and sufficient revelation through his word and the living word, his son. God may bring truth in his word to your mind as you dream, and he may apply his word to you as you dream. But he will not add to it, nor subtract to it, nor contradict it. He doesn't need to. That's an aside. I would be happy to talk to any of you about that afterwards. A number of you are asking questions about that kind of stuff. That's great. Talk to us about it. Dreams were how God spoke normally then, and everything that God revealed to Joseph in these dreams came true. His brothers would bow down to him. He would rule over them, and he would become the most powerful person in the ancient world. He would be the Savior and Lord of all. This was all true. And I suspect, now this is me reading into the text perhaps, and I shouldn't, but I think all the evidence, to me at least, would be that if he was going to react, he would react not positively but negatively against this. It's his integrity that says this for what it is. And his brothers, verse 11, were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying uh, to mind. Jealousy on the part of his brothers, what of his dad? Um, he kept the saying in mind he reflected on, pondered, thought hard about what Joseph said, rather than conclude that Joseph is an arrogant young man. All his father had known was that he was a godly young man. And then in verses 12 to 17, we read how Joseph is sent by his father to where his brothers are. You know, he says, Joseph, go off to where your brothers. Yes, Dad. 
Yes, Dad, I'm just very humble, obedient sort of stuff. And it's clear from the text that Joseph is far from home. Danger. God's man. He faces jealousy, hostility, and hatred from those he will save. He is God's man when his brothers plot to kill him. He is God's man when they sell him into slavery. He is God's man when they cover their tracks. He is God's man as he serves Potiphar in Egypt. He is God's man when his father is given a blood-stained coat. He is God's man as he languages, languishes in prison falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He is God's man as he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, as he rises to power, as his brothers bow to him, as he saves his brothers and family, as he saves people from all nations. He is God's man as God's family is brought together under his rule and it grows. And what of Jesus, to whom Joseph's life points? He is God's man who faced and faces jealousy, hostility, and hatred from those he will save, even his own. And that passage from Mark's gospel is one of the most moving and shocking passages of all. It's rare to see Jesus shocked in the gospels. Why do people take offense at Jesus? Because they really do, and at his people. Why do people reject him? Why did you and I? Well, why do you? Because Jesus Christ is Lord before whom all people must bow and confess. He will make us bow, all of us. I pray you bow before him as Savior and not as your judge, but bow you will, for Jesus Christ is Lord. One thing we ask our prospective ministry associates, what is the gospel? We give them 15 words. If they don't say it in less than 15 words, they don't get in. I think we should change the question to four words. What's the gospel? Jesus is your saviour. Yes. And that's the gospel in Genesis 37 and 50. But the other side of that coin, Jesus Christ is Lord. It is his claim to lordship that people are hostile to when Redeemer begins, people will be interested, but perhaps not hostile to the message, Jesus loves you, or Jesus is your Savior. But they will be hostile to Jesus Christ is Lord.
Joseph is God's man who points us to Jesus, who is supremely God's man. Joseph is rejected and despised by those who will come to call him their Savior and Lord. Jesus is rejected and despised by those who will come to call him their Savior. They bowed down to Jesus, and we need to bow down to him. Or we will bow down to him. Second, Joseph's brothers are wicked men. Reuben, Simeon, Levi. Uh, What they did recorded in earlier chapters of Genesis. Next Sunday night, we'll look at Genesis 38. The wickedness of Judah. Gad, Naphali, Asher, and Dan, the sons of Billah and Zilpha, about whom Joseph brings a bad account to his father. Verse 2. Bitter family strife. Verse 4. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 8. They hated him even more. Verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him. Do you remember Jesus? Mark 3 it is. His family said he is out of his mind. Verse 18 of Genesis 37. They saw Joseph from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what has become of his dreams. Hatred and jealousy leads to murderous intent. Reuben draws back from that, not wanting to shed his brother's blood. And they take his coat and throw him into an empty water pit. And then to appease their conscience, they sell him as a slave for 20 shekels of silver. To hatred is added greed. And then remorse. It's just like the passion narratives. Silver, denial, remorse, to which they add deceit as they dip his robe in blood. And then a family torn apart by evil, deceit, remorse, and unresolved grief. And Joseph, all this time sold into slavery, then sold by the Ishmaelites to Potiphar in Egypt. Now, the Bible, as I said right at the beginning, is not sentimental in any way. Now let this persuade you of the inspiration of God's words. This is the family of Jacob being written about. These are uh, 13 chapters in book one of the Bible. These are the 12 sons of Israel. This lot who chucked him in the pit, who would head up the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah, next week, chapter 38, He makes it into the genealogy. He's the great-grandfather of Boaz, I think, who is the great-grandfather of David. Judah, Tamar, make it into Matthew 1. This lot, if the Bible were made up, then you would not have constructed this about this family, this special important family. You would have airbrushed it. You would have put gloss on it. This has all the authenticity of an historical, not a mythical account. And if you are sort of persuaded, but not over the bridge on that, come back next week to chapter 38. There is no way on earth that chapter 38 would go in the Bible that I wrote. What do we see in this family? Envy and hatred and weakness and favoritism and conspiracy to murder and greed and remorse and regret and distrust 
and distress and dishonesty. Now, if you cannot find any traces or vestiges of these things in your own heart, you have never done what Genesis does to us, moves us to humbly bow before Jesus Christ as our Lord. Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander. How do you read that? Do you read it with your hands up or do you read it in a sense with your heart inclining spiritually to your knees? That's what you do. Do you find these traits in your heart? Preachers prepare for preaching on Genesis. Before we become Christians, these traits are there and they are provoked by the presence of God's man. When we are Christians, these traits are still there. They keep us humble before the Lord Jesus. That's why we need Jesus as Savior and Lord. You know, the gospel is very wonderful, but it's deeply humbling and sobering as it exposes the darkness of our hearts, our need of Jesus, our dependence on him, all the petty rivalries, ambitions, greed, remorse, regret. Why is this humbling, wonderful, because when we bow before Jesus as Lord, all undone. He forgives us all these things. He saves us and he works to restore us. And the message of Joseph's brothers in these chapters is to us, do not be sentimental about the nature of your heart. Let's be real and so really understand why we need the Lord Jesus and what he does. Third, and just to comment on this, God is sovereign over the wickedness of man to exalt his chosen man in spite of what his brothers did against Joseph. In the end, they bowed down to him. They sold him into slavery, and he became their Lord. And what they did to Jesus, worse. And yet God supremely demonstrated his sovereignty over the wickedness of man to exalt his chosen man, Jesus. And the scope of this promise is wider than we might think. God uses all this stuff to exalt his chosen man. It's not that he did what he did with Joseph in spite of what the brothers did to him. He did what he did with Joseph with what they did to oppose him. And not just with Jesus, but with his church. Jesus will build his church. He will advance his gospel Richard was praying as we, we've been burdened to do as a church after the visits of all these people with initials that we can't name. But Jesus Christ is no less Lord in East Asia tonight than he was 10 years ago. There's no way that anyone or anything can prevail against the gospel and God demonstrated his sovereignty once and for all through the cross and the empty tomb and that victory over evil, the evil that grips every rebellious human heart 
will find its fulfillment in the return of Jesus at the dawn of eternity, when what will happen? Every single person will be raised to face Jesus, and they will bow down and confess that he is Jesus Christ the Lord, to the glory of God the Father, but not if they rejected him in this life to the salvation of their own souls. Some will bow to him as their saviour. Many more will bow to him as their judge. It just came into my mind just now what I would have said to you as a young preacher. What do you say at that point? You say, which, which side will you be on? You know, that's all gone for me. Not the clarity of that, but it's a very different thing because I look in your eyes. And you say with, with love and affection, which, which side will you be on? Now, three brief applications as we close. Firstly, humility. Jesus Christ is Lord, whether you accept it or not. If you oppose him, he will take your best efforts at opposing him and trump you in the end. You will bow before him. If you oppose him or his people, that will not prevent him doing his will. He may well use your opposition to advance his purposes. Why would God do that? Why would why will God trump you in the end? Because he is God and you are not because he is sovereign and you are not. Why is God inflexible against the most hardened atheist? Why will God take an atheist on? Why will God take on a man who is broken-hearted and would love to have the faith, perhaps, that his spouse had? Because he loves you. And because he wants with all your heart to be your savior. Even though you leave him in the pit every Sunday. If Jesus is your Lord, if you have bowed down before him as your savior and Lord, keep it that way. Keep humble before him. Be honest about the state of your heart. And you need to be ever and always humble. Number two, courage, courage. Those of you who were at Word Alive last week, you had a whole lot of, well, you had sermons from Hugh Palmer on courage. Fan into flame the gift of God that he has given you. Guard the gospel. Don't abandon the faith. Courage to keep going, proclaiming the gospel. And when the gospel causes deep offense, and it will, do not think it is because Jesus is not Lord. It is because he is. And those who oppose him are in many instances those who will come to bow before him as their savior. So keep going, take heart, keep proclaiming the gospel. Press on with planting Redeemer and the next church. I mean, it would be quite sensible to abandon that, wouldn't it? And actually, it's causing a lot of hassle. 
But Jesus Christ is Lord. Over every person and on every street and in every town and city in this nation, he is Lord. And finally, encouragement. Encouragement that Jesus is Lord. (laughs) Whatever anyone says. Encouragement if you are a Christian that Jesus is your Lord. And encouragement if you're not yet a Christian. That Jesus wants to be your Savior and Lord. Even though you've left him in that pit Sunday by Sunday. He's working away gently in your heart. He plays a long game. He's relentless in his grace. But when the light is turned on, and when the conviction comes, then you must bow down, for there is your chance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for this marvelous, marvelous part of Scripture, the history of your family, opening our eyes to the inspiration of your words, humbling us, whether we are just becoming Christians or have been Christians for many years, humbling us before God's man, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to sing these truths deep into our hearts, to encourage each other in conversation afterwards, for there will be people here, many people here, who need in conversation the application of these words, humility, courage, and encouragement, because Jesus Christ is Lord, and we pray in his name. And for his sake, amen.